everyone and welcome back to episode three of the Breathe Easy podcast series, Pulmonary and Palliative Care, We Belong Together. I'm here with my co-host, Jennifer Wesco from the Wesco Foundation for Pulmonary Fibrosis. And our special guest today is Barb McLean, who is an ICU intensivist NP in Atlanta, who's going to join us today and help us discuss kind of the import of patient family caregiver communications in the ICU. Why does this matter? Um, and, you know, what is the integration with palliative care and how do you build palliative principles into that communication across the different dimensions of critical care management? And what's the impact on the families and the caregivers because of that? So um, let me begin by welcoming uh, our, our special guest, Barb. If you want to just take a few secs and introduce yourself, that would be great. Thank you so much, Patty and Jen, for bringing me here today. I'm really grateful uh, and I'm honored to have this opportunity to talk about how we integrate critical care medicine, palliative medicine, and being human every day, which is really what my focus is. I do want to just say I am a nurse practitioner. I'm also a critical care clinical nurse specialist, and I function primarily as a clinical nurse specialist. And currently, I'm the critical care program specialist in my institution, which is a large urban center. Uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, and it is a center that embraces all persons, regardless of ability to pay and regardless of immigration status. It's an urban public hospital safety net. So uh, I, I am very firmly based in the science of critical care, but what really brings me to this space today is my work in appreciating and elevating the understanding and appreciation and the human caring element for not only patients who are critically ill, but particularly for the families of critically ill. And I've been very fortunate that my hospital has supported me in so many ways, but in particular in the development of a weekly support meeting for families of critically ill for all of our intensive care units. So it's quite a large, it's a, a large bundle. Uh, and and really looking at methods of of having an increased communication style and understanding of what families are experiencing. Sometimes when you're working with individuals who may not have had the benefit of of higher levels of education or economic equity, you might discover, and that's really truly part of what I do is that uh, the tools that individuals use to communicate may not be what we as providers are used to and and really trying to uh, focus on appreciation, understanding of that, and again, this communication bridge. So thank you again for having me. Thank you. You know, Jen and I have spoken on previous occasions um, and certainly through the last you know decade or so of our friendship. Um, that this humanistic perspective is incredibly appropriate medical goal, especially in ICU care. And I think that part of the reason that becomes so important is that we know, you know, that our literature certainly supports the data, that the key themes that you see in ICU illness that families and patients both endure are these themes of fear, of sadness, and certainly at times of anger. And so the, the importance, I believe, of communication 
particularly from the provider groups, you know, whether they're the ICU team directly or and or the ICU consultants becomes so much more vital and essential to assuring that the care we're giving is as comprehensive as it can be. And I know, you know, Jen certainly had a lot more direct experience as a family member in the receiving of that information. I don't know, Jen, if you have some points or considerations to add there from your perspective as well. I'm just so happy to be here and talking with you, Patty and Barb, about this very, very important topic. And based on my experience as the daughter of a wonderful man, Ron Wesco, an experience that we had in the ICU in that perspective. And to be honest, I was absolutely oblivious of it actually what was really happening. We're talking about communication and how essential that is and important that is. And this was about 17 years ago. And so that conduit, that's how I see that. I wrote that down in my note as a conduit between the loved ones, the family, and the providers and make sure that communication is consistent, comprehensive, and that we as laymen, right, understand exactly what's going on. And that didn't happen, right? And this, but again, this was 17 years ago. And being able to have that opportunity retrospectively would have been instrumental in the transitioning time that we had to understand really the magnitude of all that was happening. And Patty, we talked about fear. Fear, anger, and sadness typically are the things. Sadness. And I, I would add on denial. Sure. Right. And, and, and really fully absorbing the enormity of it. And so that was really my experience, my only experience um, that really I can reflect on of how exactly what we're talking about, how very instrumental that would have been for us as a family. And I think, I think that's the key piece, right? That even now, almost two decades later, you still recall those that intensity and that struggle for kind of the information processing and maybe even information gathering and receiving, right? And, mm-hmm. and so... I feel like in the last two decades, we've done the work to try and make that better. Mm -hmm. Um, We certainly have kind of a a stronger entrenched philosophy. And I think Barb can expand on this for me about how the early communications in the ICU are really central to establishing that rapport and building trust. And, you know, I think that when you can do that, that also helps to kind of set the proverbial stage to help them kind of adjust to information, become hopefully maybe more realistic in their expectations, but also because there's that rapport. And, you know, I think, Barb, this is a great opportunity. I would love to kind of hear um, how your support group for families kind of got off the ground and, you know, kind of where you've taken it through the years. Because I know there's been several evolutions and then certainly you took a diverging path for being a lot more innovative when COVID happened. And we can talk a little bit too about kind of how we've managed those at our respective institutions too. So thank you. I would just like to share that when I was 13, I'm 70. So that was a really long time ago. My father was uh, acutely and unexpectedly ill. 
he he actually had Bright's disease and he ended up with a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And at that time, you know, there was complete disparity between physician and family. It was just, we told you what we wanted you to know and you just accept it. And of course, at that time, so many years ago, someone my age was not allowed to visit in the ICU. And so my father died without me actually being able to say to him, I love you. Thank you. I forgive you. Uh, I hope you forgive me. And I think that became really the underpinning for me in, in understanding what families experience. So I'm, I'm talking about something a little bit different, I think, because what I really am invested in, the appreciation and what I would call true presence of being with families as they are experiencing their experience. And of course, on, on one hand, it's, I can talk to you about general science. I can't really tell you everything your physician is saying about your loved one, but I can talk about what is intracranial pressure. What is a tracheostomy? What is mechanical ventilation? And really addressing that in layman's terms. So in 2011, I was brought to my hospital by a very innovative nurse leader. Her name was Kay Kennedy. She's written a book now about humanistic leadership. And in that book, there's a chapter about me not using my name, but talking about how she supported this idea that I had that really we needed support methodologies for families, not just, and, and, and believe me, I know how important that is, in the explanation of the physiology and the medical terminology and the understanding, because all those words kind of run down your shoulder, you're in shock, you can't really, it doesn't really matter uh, even if you're a medical person, this is, you're in shock and you just can't absorb what's been said to you and understand what's been said to you. But also I'm going to add to the list of sadness and anger, which I think are such fantastic words to en envelope this. The other, the other aspect is, and I think partly because of my own experience is regret and mm -hmm. guilt. And in my family meetings, we often begin with some discussion. Uh, it's all anonymized because there's sometimes a small group, sometimes a large group about what's happened to your loved one. What are the physiologic questions? How is this for you? What is it you would like to say to your loved one? And it was uh, actually in the beginning, the idea really was not necessarily to uncover the meaning for each individual of what was occurring and to help them express that and to understand it. But that's how it evolved. And it evolved very quickly. Within four months, we do a weekly meeting on Monday evening. At that time, it was the change of shift when Families could not be in the ICU, but they could stay and they could see their loved ones after. So it was such an advantageous time. And the exploration, uh, I mean, it sometimes was just, uh, I'm not really sure I'm prepared for this. Uh, I'm prepared for it because I've experienced it. I think I'm prepared for it because I come at experience with the appreciation that that's your experience and I can't put my information, my, my emotion on top of your experience, but to uncover 
the experience of each individual and the meaning of that for them. And it was amazing how rapidly this evolved. And we had, sometimes we had families who had loved ones in the ICU for four months and they would never miss a meeting. And in the waiting room, they would say to other families, you have to go to this meeting. You can't believe how this evolves, Mm -hmm. uh, how you're feeling. And it helps you to understand not only what's happening to your loved one, but it helps you to understand and give validation to what it is you're feeling. So I can give you, uh, I, I can give you many excerpts and small quotes uh, from my families and, and my families from the families I work with. And uh, I can share lots of different things with you, but I also don't want to occupy all the time. So um, mm-hmm. let me stop there and, 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 and see what's next. So I, I think what I hear you saying and where I think we've, you and I have had several previous discussions on this, you know, the importance of communication in critical care illness and critical illness management, you know, particularly in the ICU setting for our patients and families is really based on the fact that there's just so much uncertainty, you know, that accompanies this. And there was a pretty decent, a pretty good study in CHEST back in 2020 with Harlan's group. Um, that really kind of talked about emotional experiences, coping strategies of critically ill patients. And, you know, in their cohort, 65% of these families reported anxiety and over 30% reported depression as well as PTSD symptomology. And, you know, what we really have learned is that emotional distress that people are experiencing and relating, you know, whether they display it through their anger or other behavioral issues? Is it tears? Is it anger? Is it yelling? Is it avoidance? Is it denial? Is it regret? Um, I think that you're seeing when you see that distress during crisis, it is a harbinger for PTSD, right? And so this intervention of the communication and the support is what provides people, I think, with a very necessary platform of safety Um, and some reassurance for these ongoing dialogues. And certainly in palliative medicine, you know, part of the reason we say, you know, in the ICU setting, it would be best that we are seeing the most critically ill patients within the first 24 hours of admission, which generally flies in the face of convention, where people will say, well, no, no, let's give it a couple of days before we call palliative medicine, because I think they can get better. We're not giving up yet. And I think Mm -hmm. that stems from two things, right? Clearly one, a, a gross misunderstanding of what palliative care is or palliative medicine. Um, Secondly, perhaps also kind of sometimes calling palliative medicine, some people equate that with a personal or professional failure. And I've certainly heard that from some colleagues through, you know, through my two decades of of doing this work. Mm -hmm. And what I always say is, you know, it's not any different calling palliative medicine for the appropriate triggers and the appropriate reasons then when you would call, you know, another consulting group, cardiology or GI or nephrology for the indications and the triggers that their specialty requires or suggests that you call them for. Mm-hmm. And so in our case, these critically ill patients and families, the more complex, the more ill, the more high risk or high acuity they are, getting us involved early to facilitate these communications and this ongoing dialogue. And frankly, also to help with things like symptom management is very important because again, it helps reduce the overall emotional distress. It helps reduce that sense or that disparity in the communication or the distrust. And I think that what we've learned over the years is that there's 
you know, several ways to have these communications, right? And I think a really good way is to have that kind of a forum where it's in a group with other like experiences so that number one, you know, off the bat, you're not alone. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's humanistic care. Mm -hmm. And again, that humanistic perspective is what is really important as a medical goal. I think sometimes we forget that and we have to kind of become more mindful of that. But mm -hmm. if anything, I think these last two years of COVID have really reminded us of the importance of being more mindful and centering into our practice mm -hmm. and remembering that there's this actual literal human whose family is affected by the fallout, which really in cases of COVID, I would say, Barbara, and you and I have talked about this, is almost like a nuclear level mm -hmm. of fallout, right? Because hospitals were shut down, restriction on visitations happened. You can't see your loved ones now. They're critically ill with the virus, at least first round surge. We didn't have a lot of treatments or a lot of options for. You know, so how do you manage in those circumstances? Like what were the things you did to elevate that communication and support during, you know, a pandemic? Okay, there, uh, such an excellent question. A so, loaded question. It is. It's a loaded question. Because I wanna, I, 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 first of all, I, you said something that I think was really remarkable. Um, and we really should um, expand the term palliative, which is very embedded in a critical care provider, in, in providers in healthcare. Palliative care is associated with hospice and end of life in their mind, right? right. And that's, that's quite a barrier. Mm -hmm. and, and I think the idea is I'm palliating the family. I'm providing a different level of support for the family, but as uh, so as as your service does, um, because I'm not in the palliative care service, but I'm very fortunate to work uh, very often, like especially during the COVID crisis, hand in hand with the palliative service. But I think that that was such an important statement to make because the the historical word palliative care, as you said, in provider's mind is, I've failed, mm -hmm. right? Why is it that, and, that, and that's such an important question, is that at, at, at the first point is palliative care is about how we understand the human experience, how we assure that our patient who's intubated and sedated is not experiencing pain. How do we, how do we bring a family the first time into an ICU? without an absolute extraordinary explanation. You're gonna hear words like mechanical ventilation, although we don't say that. Usually people say they're on life support. Well, immediately mm -hmm. that says to a family, my, my loved one is, is dying. Well, mm -hmm. no, we mostly say, oh no, we're, we're doing life support. We're doing mechanical ventilation. We're replacing the kidney function. But all of those words are just resoundingly intense to a family because what they know is what they see on television mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. what they've heard about others. So that's that's the first step. And I think palliative Well, and add to that health literacy, yes. right? Yes. Add to that health literacy. Yes, of course. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. And, and I think that that's that first step of really involving a, a, a palliative service in this extraordinary mm -hmm. understanding of what we as providers see as an everyday practice and nothing to worry about. The family sees as 
an indicator that their loved one is imminently dying. Now, sometimes that is true. And we have to have clear conversations that say we are working and we're using every opportunity, but your loved one is so critical, they may not survive. And we want you to be able to come to the bedside, have say what you need to say. They may not respond to you, but it's not just about the patient here. It's about the family that they have things they need to say. And we need to give guidance in that way. The other, the other really, I think, integral, meaningful opportunity here is, again, and, and you've said it so eloquently, Patty, is the understanding that all every single day when we say, oh, we're going to place a tracheostomy, <gasps> oh, I saw those commercials on TV with people talking through a microphone as their trach. We see a tracheostomy as something really beneficial and mm -hmm. something that's a bridge. But a family doesn't hear that from their standard provider. Palliative care, that palliative care service, I think offers such an extraordinary opportunity in a bridge for communication. And that, I think, is one of the main focuses that we should all have today is that you have a critical patient that you're doing everything you can to try to generate their survival. But everything you talk about and everything you're doing is a shock mm -hmm. and soul-wrenching component to the family members. And again, health literacy, but from my point of view, that health literacy is not even necessarily the most important issue. It's really, it's mm -hmm. really equity mm -hmm. and recognizing in that we as providers operate on a different platform, not better or worse. It's just a different platform. Right. So for us, oh, we're going to put in a, a feeding tube and we're going to do a tracheostomy. You know, we don't see that as, as uh, detrimental. We see that right. as beneficial, but we don't, we don't have a way to talk. And that, that really, of course, is, is, is what you're communicating here. And that's why for me, one of the most important things that kind of underlies my experience is really appreciating what I call true presence, which is I can never be in someone else's shoes. I can't really say, oh, I know how you feel. I don't know how you feel. I don't come from where you are. I am present with you as you express your feelings, as you express your fears. And when I hear that, I can say, oh, yes, I hear that. The idea of a tracheostomy is terrifying. And your your loved one is very sick. But mm -hmm. what is that true meaning from a medical perspective, from a familial perspective? And how do we merge that together so that we are really, really, truly partners? And that's really what I've been doing with my family support meeting over these 11 years, three years, two and a half years during covid Reduced, definitely reduced because we restricted families. So we weren't doing family meetings in that way. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the, the big takeaway today, you know, for our listeners is to really think about the fact that from the provider perspective, you know, my background is pulmonary critical care. I segued into palliative medicine really because I very much felt acutely that I did not have the skills to care for these patients in these advanced illness or end of life situations, you know, in critical illness. And I, I didn't think that I was communicating effectively. 
you know, and so I sought out some more education. And then I eventually ended up taking a position in palliative medicine and kind of, you know, transitioning my skill set. But I think what I bring to the table a lot of times, you know, when I'm in the ICU is that, you know, I do understand where people are coming from, right? I very much get the provider perspective because that used to be my only perspective. Now I have this joint perspective, I kind of call it. And the biggest lesson I learned, you know, in ICU, this is like over 20 years ago, is one of our social workers who had a theology background, his name was Dan, stood at the bedside during a family meeting with surgery, critical care, myself, um, and we're discussing the very things you just mentioned, a trach, a peg, patient who had a significant neurologic injury, and really kind of the language was so questionable because we were using language that frankly said, well, for him to get better, he needs a trach and a peg. And the family was like, okay, so he's going to get better. And Dan was very astute. And he said, so let's stop here for a minute. And he goes, now, I would like to know from you as the family, what does better mean to you? Because better to us here in the ICU is that your loved one is stable. He's able to leave the ICU. And from from here on, he'll go to you know, LTAC or a skilled, you know, vent facility, et cetera. And the family looked appalled, you know, when Dan said that and said, no, you said better. That means you're going to do this trach and a peg here. He's going to get better in a week or two. And he's going to walk back out of here, come home. And he's going back to doing the things he likes, like hunting, fishing, et cetera. And it was like this moment of absolute clarity where clearly we had failed the communication with this family because there was such a huge disparity between what we felt was better and what they felt was better. And, you know, I have always gone back to Dan's lesson and I have said to patients, even if I'm talking to them before another meeting and I will say, you know, first let's answer what does better mean to you? Because then when we meet with oncology or we meet with critical care, then the next question is let's ask them what better means to them. If those two things don't jive, we have to have more conversation and more discussion about what then are the boundaries? What are the restrictions? What are you willing to do, not willing to do? And what of all these decisions we're asking you to make aligns with the wishes and the preferences of the person in the bed? Because that's who we're serving. Yes. You know, I'm not here to serve this decision maker alone or the person who wants to make the choices. That choice that we're asking you to make is really reflective of, can you tell me what's in line with this loved one's wishes and and that type of thing. And I think when we offer them that ongoing structured support with meetings and family meetings and support, I think that's where you start seeing that families feel encouraged, you know, families feel empowered, families feel reassured. But again, the trust and the rapport becomes so much more important. And I personally have found, especially during COVID, that family engagement was fundamentally the key to just optimizing the entire experience of critical illness for both the the, the families, the patients, but also for the provider and caregiver teams because everybody suffered in COVID, right? COVID did not spare any one of us. So whether you were in housekeeping, facilities, you know, the guy at the front helping people get wheelchairs or at the bedside with the nursing teams or ICU docs, everybody suffered 
in their own way with COVID. Mm -hmm. And that communication, we quickly realized, had to pivot and we had to do better. And so, you know, from our perspective, you know, I'm in a rural health system. I know you're in an urban health system. You know, we had to change how we did things. Our hospital went to a lockdown where there was no visitation, period. Same, same. Um, and that took a Except lot, you know. Exception. Yeah. It took a long time to kind of get leadership to let me let someone in for an end of life visit. But we quickly leveraged telehealth. I admit that's not the most perfect, but we had to move to some kind of a format because people need a chance to say goodbye. Mm -hmm. Right. And my residents should not be whipping out their cell phone in a COVID ICU for that to happen. We had to do better. Um, then we moved to, okay, let's improve how palliative medicine and critical care engage in the, in the caregiving of this COVID patient. And so one thing that quickly evolved and became necessary was there needs to be a faster way to get us involved. You know, the 24 hour recommendation was noted and no one disagreed with it, but it's hard to get everyone across the board to remember to do it. So we modified our COVID order set. We have Epic as the EMR, and there's an automatic consult to palliative medicine if you are admitted to the COVID ICU. Um, secondarily, that was signed off by critical care medicine committee and then med exec committee as well to make it official. And the nurses can order that as a protocol order should the patient have been transferred in from our COVID med surge or step down units to our COVID ICU, because then the admission order set would not apply, right? Those were transfer patients. And so we worked on kind of automating the process of engagement. Then when we got to the ICU, we stepped in and took on primary responsibility for communication. So we engaged with the family. We provided daily or every other day updates. We rounded together with critical care, nursing, and the social work teams. We did the family meetings. We did the additional follow-up calls, whether they needed to be by Zoom or in person. And what that really helped do, what you started seeing was it offloaded some pressure off the critical care medicine team so they could start addressing some more of the other acute physiologic issues they needed to do in the unit and free them up so that they did not have to get, you know, kind of bogged down really in this barrage of back-to-back-to-back -back family meetings. And then for those patients who moved towards comfort care or end-of-life care with terminal COVID, we then took on that responsibility for managing those cases. So again, we didn't have to encumber our ICU teams because they were already stretched in really seeing everybody in every place, you know, whether it was ED, step down, med surge or COVID ICU. So we just, as a team, I felt like, you know, as a, as a greater team of healthcare providers, we had to do better. And so we tried and we did. And I think we made an impact because when I look back on our data, um, the palliative medicine team, and my little hospital, which at the time was two providers, saw 87% of all the COVID ICU admissions. Um, and I think that's important work. I know our volumes don't reflect other big, larger centers, but for a smaller hospital system, it was still a substantial volume. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's where our role for advocacy comes in, you know, because you can teach people primary palliative skills, which, you know, so someone like you has kind of evolved that to beyond just primary, you know, you're, you're not necessarily wanting to be at the specialist palliative care level of the depth of things that I maybe do, but I don't have the depth of understanding of the critical illness management that you do, right? So we can be really complementary together and partner and collaborate. And I think that's where the real magic happens mm -hmm. in the ICU. So I don't know if you had different thoughts on that, but 
No, uh, I, I, I 100% agree, but I do want to remark on a few things that you've said, if, if that's okay. Mm -hmm. So first of all, um, I want to give complete kudos to our palliative care team and the lead of that, I'm not going to give his full name, Dr. Paul, and then he has an abundance of, of nurse practitioners practitioners in palliative care, not an abundance, but like four or five. And then uh, social work, they has a palliative care social worker and connections to our chaplaincy group. Um, we, the first patient that came to our hospital with COVID was in February of uh, 2020. And really nobody had a clue what to do. This was really early um, and myself and three other providers, nurse providers, provided his actual direct care for the seven days where he was acutely, almost critically ill. Um, and that was really also very abundant because his mother, who had been exposed to him, she said, we offered her the opportunity to stay in the room with him. She could not leave the room without a mask. This was so early. Um, but she, she chose to stay with him. And I think their particular familial experience was really strong because of that. Then as we started understanding more and more about COVID, we completely restricted visitation, just like everyone else. And I remember very early, so I think it was probably late in March of 2020, um, I, I used my pharmacist, her name is Emily, I used her cell phone in a double plastic bag because I wasn't there with my phone, took it into the room so that the family could speak to their loved one and say goodbye. From that, we were really evolving uh, tele telecommunication. But I think what was also really important, and I don't want to lose sight of this, and I really want to focus that the emotional distress the profound ethical questioning that was created in this separation of loved ones during COVID is something that needs to be discussed because this is an opportunity for all of us to really grow to appreciate the meaning of that interaction and experience and mourn that that was lost for most of us during COVID and build our new structures based on that understanding. Because quite honestly, I think if you were to interview direct providers, people who were at the bedside all the time, they will say the single most important issue for them was not donning and doffing and how difficult all of that was, but it was caring for persons who in their dying moments could not be with people that they loved. And I feel that, that that sorrowful, torturous, horrific moment in the family's life and in the provider's life is something that should give rise to a new evolution in the way in which we communicate. Because this is something where without us really talking about this and bringing it forward, and I appreciate so much this opportunity, is could be lost. Because we talked about, oh, how hard this was for us because we're the only family with the patient as they die. We're the ones holding their hand. We're the ones stroking their head, saying, it's okay, I'm with you. But we also really felt this deep, deeply into our spirit and soul. And, and this is an opportunity.
So out of suffering always emerges an opportunity. Mm -hmm. And there is an opportunity to really raise awareness of why this is such an incredible importance. And your system, because they were guided by you and other like-minded individuals, you really evolved quickly. But most of our systems, I think we had a little more struggle. We have we have a fantastic palliative service, and I'm so honored to have been able to work with them. And um, I did a lot of end-of-life visits because I was the Don Doff expert. So I would dress families, take them in, bring them out or bring them to the door, undress them, make sure that they were safe. But I, I was one person and I did about 35 end of life visits. But what we also discovered is that many families felt uncertain and they didn't really want to have an end of life visit because they were afraid themselves that they might get ill. So that was one thing that we did. And I, again, very fortunately that I was working with this fabulous palliative care service just in the assurance to our families that we could keep them safe. But I, I really think the other the other tragedy here is the toll that it took on our providers. And I think that's also a place for palliative care mm-hmm. to palliate our providers who are mm-hmm. also suffering from PTSD. To kind of bring us to a close, because I know we're coming to the end of our time together. I, I think that we're hearing there's some really good takeaways, right? That ICU families need emotional support from the start because there's feelings like anger and despair or fear or sadness. And those are all places that we as providers can provide additional support. And that's the intervention, the therapeutic intervention is support and communication. This communication should be simple. It should be free of medical jargon. You're doing that beautifully in your support groups. I think Mm -hmm. you're able to give people, like you said, a broad explanation because you have a knowledge of science, which we all come to that table with as providers, but we need to then translate that into a language that is usable for the people we're speaking to. So to kind of know our audience, you know, and, and speak appropriately. And then to really just remember that in these communications, which we hope to keep concrete, straightforward and direct, we're also like taking the time, which is what meetings like the ones you run really demonstrate, you know, sit down, humanistically have the perspective of medical care that matters from that humanistic perspective and take the compassion and the time to kind of interact and meaningfully understand where folks are coming from. Because again, we know if we leave that unaddressed, it's all these harbingers for for PTSD. And so there are tools out there to help folks, you know, no one is alone. The spikes protocol, there's remap, vital talk has several um, helpful modalities and videos you can watch to kind of learn a talking map or a cognitive map as a provider. There's also a great website with Wes Ely's group and his research into ICU delirium. And there's a whole section on family engagement and, you know, the ABCDEF bundle that F is really for family engagement, right? And to really remember that we need to include families. So I, um, you know, I think that this is just a very, very important topic. I'm very thankful for the opportunity, you know, to bring it forward and share these perspectives with our listeners. And, you know, I don't know if Jen and Barb, if you guys have any final thoughts or any other comments? 
I just, I just think this was a tremendous conversation uh, and it, it, and it goes with patient and family engagement to provider support of what everybody's experienced through the COVID, uh, through COVID pandemic. And, um, you know, the consistent wording throughout this conversation is humanistic partnership. Um, uh, kudos to you, Barb, of having the support groups uh, with folks who have family members in the ICU, it's it's going above and beyond making sure that wraparound approach is available and the opportunity to have it there. If it doesn't exist, there's no opportunity to actually implement that. So um, to have that and to see that, that's just tremendous. And I have no doubt that's been tremendously helpful for uh, patient, well, family members and loved ones. Um, and so this conversation had such a, such a great process of where we're talking with patient engagement and family engagement to provider support. I mean, so thank you, Barb, Patty, thank you. It was, it was tremendous. I know it's going to be helpful to many. Thank you guys so much. And thank you, Barb, for making time for us. I know you're on a cross country trek with family. And so we very much appreciate you carving out the time, um, especially, you know, settling into a spot with Wi-Fi and staying connected for us. Uh, I know we took up a good amount of your time today, but we're so thankful. Thank you. May I say one last thing? Absolutely. Is that, is that okay. I'm so grateful. And, and thank you for inviting me and for giving me a platform to share what my experience is. But I also want just to remind everyone, COVID highlighted what was already a problem. And some, some listeners will say, well, COVID is over. It's not really an issue. But it really highlighted what was an inherent difficulty. And we have such an opportunity. I would just want to be sure that we appreciate what this opportunity is to understand what our colleagues are experiencing every day in critical care over and over again, to understand what our families are experiencing every day in care again and again. And COVID fast forwarded that and highlighted it in a much more dramatic method, but I don't want to lose the meaning of it because the drama of it has reduced. Mm -hmm. I want to be sure that all of our listeners, all of our colleagues and all of our families and patients expect us to continue on this journey. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. And, and thank you so very much for inviting me. Thank you all for joining us. I appreciate everyone. Have a good day.